Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Boop. Welcome to episode 68 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast, joined as always by Mary, the Canadian Christmas elf who enjoys filling her own stocking with IPAs. I am just a broken toy given without batteries named Darren. Hey, Mary, how are you? Oh my God, you're so much more than that. I'm doing good. Thanks for asking. <laughs> anyway, how Anyways. are you? Oh, that's fabulous. It's, it's, you know, Christmas is in the air. It's um, not a snowflake to be seen, unfortunately, here, but certainly everyone seems to be in a pretty good mood almost. It is, it is Tuesday, so you never know. But I think for the most part, you know, that people are excited about it. Wait, today's not even Tuesday. It's not Tuesday. I was going to say, today's about? Thursday. That's, you know what? That's what happens. Oh, that's, that's what why happens. I'm in a good mood then, right? You that's probably why you're in a good mood. Yeah. Anyway, Maybe we should record on Thursdays more often. Yeah, fine with me. Fine with me. Anyway. So, hi, what's going on? It's been a couple of weeks since we did this. Kind it of has to get been. back in the old saddle again. Yeah, it feels like it's been forever since we last recorded. But yeah, since we last recorded, we uh, we were back in the Berg again for a little visit. We were. As well. We, were. we got to meet back, up with back, uh, back Tattoo Historian. Good times. We did. We had a good time. It was a yep. lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to get back down to God's country yep. again. Yeah, we saw lots. We saw a few of our friends. We saw Tattoo Historian, John Heckman, um, and we got to hang out with our friend Allie B a little bit too, which was awesome, and saw our friend Bill as well. So it was a fun time. Great to be back. It was a good time. It was a great time. And and Gettysburg at Christmas, for those who have never been, you got to go. It is absolutely beautiful there. It actually really is. It's They do it upright. It's a lot of fun. People are in a good mood. It wasn't too too cold. It wasn't too wet. It was just right. Right. So speaking of cold and wet, Mary, what are you drinking? (laughs) God, I am drinking... Uh, Red Zone from Knockabout Brewery, which is in Cape Cod, and some very nice American brought me that. That's pretty no such awesome. Thing as a nice American. <laughs> so like, anyway, it is it is great, and I am drinking it out of my Iron Brigade mug because tonight we are talking Rufus Dawes. There you oh. go. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And what are you drinking? I am drinking. It's from Collective Arts in Canada. Some Canadian person <laughs> gave me this. It's called Stranger Than Fiction, and I am likewise drinking it out of my Iron Brigade mug because um. Because like you just said, we're going to be talking, we're going to be adding some iron to the old diet tonight, Mary. We're going to be talking about Rufus Dawes. How about that? We are. And just uh, to let our listeners know, if they want to go back and learn a little bit more about the Iron Brigade, which Rufus Dawes was part of, we did an episode about that with our friend Eric, who is also the author of Black Iron Mercy, which we would both highly recommend reading that book. It is awesome. It certainly is. It certainly is. So it's a good time to talk about this. We're going to talk about him. So let's talk a little bit about the old background of Rufus Dawes. Mm-hmm. Rufus R. Dawes. The R stood for nothing. He just wanted an R. Perhaps he wanted to be a pirate. Who knows? <laughs> I read but that. He, I thought um, that was so funny. That he, strange to do he that. Was like, okay. He was born on the 4th of July, 1838, which is that, I think that's uh, Independence Day, Mary, here in I America anyway. Is. I don't know you guys have up there. But it was fitting considering how patriotic that Dawes was. And we're going to talk about him throughout this episode. That's the one theme about him is he's a very patriotic fella. He was born yeah. in Malta, Ohio, a small town. Even today is a small town. There's less than 700 people in Malta who live there now. It's about 800, um, actually about 80 miles southeast of Columbus, Ohio. I don't know if you knew this, Mary, but he's the great-grandson of William Dawes. He's a guy who rode with Paul Revere around Boston one night in April of 1775 to warn of the British regulars yeah. coming, So, and which led up to the battles of Lexington and Concord. So again, he has a very historical past. You know, Growing up, he spent a lot of time in Marietta, Ohio, near his grandfather. Yeah. And his parents did split, so he, he split up his time. He lived with his mother, Sarah Cutler, for a little while before eventually moving in with his father, who lived in a town called Malston, Wisconsin. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And he moved there with his brother. He goes to school. I believe it's in, he goes to a school in Wisconsin and then he goes to college in Ohio as well. So he's back and forth between both states quite a bit. And that's the one thing that I thought is unique about Dawes. You don't hear much about parents separating in the 19th century. Um, so for him to do that, and at the time when there's not the transportation that we have today, you know, that must have been quite a long journey for him to make between those two states to see both of his parents. And he's got a few siblings too. Like when he moves to Wisconsin, he's moving there with his brother. He moves there in 1855. He is going to be 22 years old at the outbreak of the Civil War. It's amazing like, how young he was. We mentioned he went to a school called Marietta College, mm-hmm. Go Pioneers, Mary, in Marietta, Ohio, where he graduates in the class of 1860. And then when he graduates, he does go back to Wisconsin to help work with his father's business in that town of Moss. And, and to what you just said, Civil War is going to break out. He's just 22 years old. Abraham Lincoln blows that conch shell, looking for 75,000 people to help squelch the rebellion. He immediately wants to join. The quote he used is he felt it was a glorious privilege to aid and crush the rebellion. Mm-hmm. And like, like many, he thought it was going to be a little quickie. It was going to be a 60-day deal. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of people <laughs> felt at the time, well, 60 days though. But for, <laughs> but for that for, for, for that reason, you know, he wanted to get involved early because he felt that if, if he didn't get involved, he was going to miss it. So he yeah. was chomping at the bit to get into, into involved. But he went out over and above though. A lot of people just signed up. They want to join. He decided to raise his own company. So in Malston, on April 25th, 1861, you know, Rufus Dawes begins to recruit and he quickly signs 48 volunteers at the drop of a hat to join the company. Mm -hmm. By April 30th, five days later, he's up to 100 guys. And they begin to meet at a place called Langworthy's Hall in the village of uh, Mansion, Wisconsin, where naturally Dawes is going to be elected captain. So Mm -hmm. he's got 100 guys. He's going to be the captain. Now, again... He's waiting for the official word. So they're going to decide to call themselves the Lemonware Minutemen. Since the nearby peaceful Lemonware River was going to remind them of home, that's what he was going to do. So like many, they signed up for that service. And it reminds me a lot of like here after 9-11. There was a great yeah. rush of patriotism. And a lot of people I knew ran up and joined us, joined the service because they wanted to feel like mm-hmm. they were a part of it. It's almost similar sort of to that regard, but he joined the military out of pure pride to put down this rebellion. He took it personally that they were trying to destroy his country, that his great-grandfather yep. helped forge with Paul Revere. He wasn't doing it for a pension or any sort of, any other reason beyond just patriotism and pride. He took it as a great honor. Now, because he he wanted to get, he was so badly wanted to get called up in the service, he busted his butt in those lemon wears butts hard. He felt he was going to drill them really, really hard, but he didn't have a military background. He didn't know what the hell he was doing, but he was going to try. He wanted to get involved early, like I said. He dispatched one of his guys, a guy named John Turner, to go to the state capitol in Madison, and he's going to go visit Governor Randall, and he wants to let the governor know that we're ready to go. Call us up. We're we're ready. Again, a lot of these people thought that this was going to be quick, and there was yep. that big rush, right? There was one guy who was familiar with with Dawes? He it was he was a kind of an old codger in in Wisconsin. His name was Captain Belfour. He was mm-hmm. a British guy, and he was like the one voice of reason. And he was trying to assure Dawes that this war was not going to be quick. Yeah, he told him, and he's quoting him here. He says, "Don't fret, young man. Your company will be needed. You have no Wellingtons nor Napoleons in this country." 
and no experience in a war. This is not a 60-day job. He speaks prophetically a little bit about the State of the Union. He's looking around. He, this is an old British guy who fought. And he's like, listen, I'm looking at your army. You guys, this is going to be a real deal. So, you know, buy your time. So June 1st, 1861, Wisconsin has got 12 official regiments signed up. Okay, and Dawes and his company are still on that sideline with their men waiting to get that call because that's how it worked. Yeah, they, and poor they Dawes is just like, he's he's kind of beside himself with this anxiety of wanting to to get called up and and he said you know he wrote his sister on and, and he said i am captain of as good and true a band of patriots as ever rallied under the star-spangled banner the men expect and earnestly desire to go and wait impatiently their turn so there's this impatience going on that they want to get up there and as you said you know there's this thought that it's going to be be a short just like you know 60 day war Dawes writes what seemed to most concern our patriotic and ambitious young men was the fear that someone else would get there ahead of them and crush the rebellion before they got there. So he is like chomping at the bit to go. All I can picture is him, you standing outside the liquor store with 10 minutes till it opens. That's exactly it right there. Pacing yep. back and forth. Yep. But if he, that's how he, he wants to go. So filing the 29th of June, Dawes is going to get a word from a guy named W.H. Watson, the military secretary of Wisconsin, but the Lemonware Miniman were candidates to join the 6th Wisconsin Regiment, and they can begin to board their company on the state dime. So up for 250 bucks a week, they're going to get to board these Lemonware guys to await their orders. The key is they got to sign three-year papers. So yeah. it's not a 60-day thing. They're doing the three-year deal. They're going for the full thing. So July 6th, 1861, two days after Dawes is going to turn 23 years old, those 94 volunteers now, he's on 94 of the Lemonware Minutemen, are going to travel to Camp Randall in Madison, Wisconsin, and they're going to officially join the 6th Wisconsin. Now, Camp, Camp Randall, if you know this, it is located today on the site of where the University of Wisconsin football team plays, oh, nice. which is called Camp Randall Stadium. So if you're watching a game on TV, Michigan beating them probably, <laughs> you'll be able to see the actual area where these campers um they train so that's very cool so 6th of july cool when you look at this because you can imagine they've spent months training these guys yeah. right they've got their own uniforms if they have them they don't really know what they're doing but they're full of pride so on the 6th of july dawes company is going to march into camp randall Two thousand men of the fifth and sixth wisconsin are kind of lined on the sides greeting them kind of a welcome party kind of like you know just imagine you know how happy Dawes must have been. I imagine you at happy hour somewhere. Oh yeah, exactly. Know, you walk in there and angels are singing. It's kind of like when I walk into Foursquare and it's like, woo. Yay. Oh God, exactly. Everybody <laughs> covers their face. But you know what's, what's, what's funny about Dawes is once he gets there, he looks around and goes, shit, man, I'm not as ready as I, I mean, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so he's going to, really, real quickly, he's going to realize how ill-prepared his dudes are, right? So he realizes that he only taught them two marches, forward march and move by your right flank. That's all they knew, right? So when they marched, they moved into two ranks and they were tripping over each other and probably doing to nervous, due to nervous. I'm imagining them as those guys. What was that movie that we just watched? Was that Stripes? Stripes. That's yeah, exactly just, just how stripes. they were. That's exactly That's how, how they were. Them, were. Right? Yeah. And the other thing too is they would when they showed up, they must have looked like hobos because most of Dawes men mm -hmm. were dressed in the clothes of their professions. We're talking raftsmen, lumberjacks, clowns, 
fishermen. However, they wanted to be dressed up in their real jobs is how they were dressed. And some actually wore white capes called Havelocks. That's amazing. The armature with a white cape, you know, <laughs> you know, and some wore straw hats, you know. And so, yeah, that's the scene from Stripes is probably very appropriate. And they're tripping over each other. Yeah. Now, it's funny because Dawes, when he gets there, he's going to meet the adjutant of the 6th Regiment, a guy named Frank Haskell, mm-hmm. we've talked about, which, you know, part of the second court, yeah. Gettysburg with Hancock and the whole deal. Haskell is dressed to the nines in his full uniform. He's riding a horse. He probably looks like a, you know, like an old spice commercial compared to these guys, right? <laughs> and he's, and, and you can see the picture, you know, this, this lemonware Minutemen just standing there, probably in awe of the whole situation. Yep. Right. Well, now, they show Haskell, up and they think they're hot shit, right? And then they exactly. show up and they're like, "Oh no, we're not." It's like Apollo Creed in that that Rocky movie. He shows up dancing, he gets yeah. pounded. They got humbled pretty pretty quickly. So yeah. what Haskell does, he has the Lemonwares march with a group called the Milwaukee Zouaves. Mm-hmm. The Milwaukee Zouaves were the best drillers and trainers at all the sixth. They were the absolute best. They marched with Dawes men just to more show that contrast of how bad Dawes guys were. So they must have been a little bit cocky when they got there. From there, Dawes is going to meet the colonel of the sixth Wisconsin, a great Commonwealth of Massachusetts guy named Lysander Cutler. Yep. We, we talked about in Gettysburg later on, we'll talk about later. He welcomes the Lemonwares in, gives him a great welcome speech, and he assigns them as Company K. So now they're officially Company K of the 6th Regiment. So in camp, Dawes is kind of feeling his way through, and he becomes really friendly with the, the commander of Company E, a guy named Edward Bragg. Yep. We'll talk about him later on. He's a future U.S. rep from the state of Wisconsin after the war, but we'll talk about him, especially when we get to Antietam. But these two are going to be kind of tied at the hip off and on throughout their careers, and they meet at Camp Randall to help set up the um their initial training for for, the, for this company k he finally gets to write his sister to tell her that he's finally made it you know i can't imagine he must have been so excited about this and his sister seems to be his primary correspondent at this time and he writes his other siblings too and he said he tells her that my men are not more than half supplied with blankets and as we have cold drizzling weather they have suffered it is a new life to to us all but i hope we can get broken in without much sickness and then at the time they all had gray uniforms Right. And he actually says he's kind of feels bad when they get the blue uniforms. He's like, oh, really? The the gray ones are really, really nice. So it's funny that they're in these gray uniforms. And it's on July 16th, 1861, that they are all mustered into three years of service. Those gray uniforms, they paid money for those. I know. Yeah. And then then they get these blue ones where he says, and I quote, they were shoddy and sleazy. That's the phrase he used to describe. But okay. Well, you got to think, though, like... You have to, like, you know, like what that guy said to to Dawes that this is going to be a long struggle because you guys don't have the army. You can't, like, how quickly are these uniforms being made? That's why they're so, like, sleazy, right? They're being, like, just quickly mass produced, whereas these gray ones, probably time was taken with them and all that. So it's just funny about that but their but their training continued in camp and a lot of the other companies had a lot of fun with them you know the six was made up from of soldiers from all around wisconsin including company f under a guy named captain hauser whose company was made up primarily of milwaukee germans okay just german speaking yep. hard germans while watching dawes uh try to march one of the german soldiers said with his german accent well now they looks like one damn herd of goose yep that was the phrase they used. <laughs> i was hoping you so, had that quote yeah i was just it, thinking was, that one and it's funny because rufus dawes again he had no military background was which good and bad for the most part but he doesn't know what he doesn't know he's a captain of the company he meets his paymaster a guy named simeon mills 
This is the guy who helped determine who gets paid the money or helps pay it out. He wants to know to Captain Dawes, why didn't you submit the name of your servant on the payroll list? And Dawes is like, I don't have a friggin' servant. And Mills tells him, I think you certainly do as regulations, wink, wink, require it. Servants got the captain an additional $13 a month plus 30 cents a day. So his normal salary of $68 per month will be $128 per month to help pay for your, quote, servant. So they were manipulating the system. So Dawes goes, okay. So he writes in his memoirs, he says, I couldn't remember if my servant was had red hair with green eyes or green hair with red eyes. <laughs> and, I ha- I, and I happily pocketed the additional salary on behalf of the rest of the cap. I can only imagine, you know, what kind of fun and games the employees of the D and Carden applying if that's how these military <laughs> guys are. So they were creating a fake servant to get a paycheck for him. But that's the captain was crazy. And, they, and all the captains ran on, even the paymaster. So the, when they brought it up, Dawes like, okay. And he made up a guy. And that's exactly, so he made a little extra money on him. Say, good for him, right? Oh my God, that's creative shit right there. <laughs> but, but, you know, um, you know, Dawes guys, you know, in, in it's funny because as they continued to drill, they did lose guys. They, they ended up losing four men in camp since they arrived. Um, one of them they lost because he wanted to be a drummer and didn't know how to drum. Yep. The other wanted to be a fifer. Guess what? Didn't know how to fife. That would be me. So they didn't, that would be, oh yeah, don't, don't have no question about that. Although he probably had determination when he tried, though. No question <laughs> about that. <laughs> certainly did. By July 16th, you mentioned um, the 6th Regiment, all with three years' papers, they're going to end up with 1,045 men for yeah. the 6th Regiment. Dawes Company K now is going to have 91 guys. Okay, pretty good, pretty good. They're all sitting around this Camp Randall, and they want to go because the war has kind of started. A couple of days later, on July 21st, 1861, Mary, there was this battle called Bull Run. I don't know if you've heard of it. I think we did an episode about it. I think we did. Good, you were paying paying attention. I was. And and, and afterwards, Dawes and the rest of that six Wisconsin, they left Camp Randall and they're going to be moving east. So they're finally out of camp and they're going to get to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania on August 1st. They're they're kind of moving along. Dawes in his memoirs talks a lot about how the troops from Wisconsin were in awe of the Allegheny Mountains because they never saw them before. Well, they had never. They would never have seen anything like that, right? right? Like it's very different terrain in Wisconsin and in mm-hmm. that area of the U.S. And to see those for the first time would have been like, whoa. It's like, and these are guys that if there had not been a war, a lot of these men might never have traveled outside of their home state, right? Mm-hmm. No, exactly. It's, you can imagine like a little kid on the airplane for the first time in awe, right? And or that's me when the Lexo were... gets new else oh, or God. gets new IPAs. Darren, Darren, guess what? Yeah. Right. <laughs> but so they they do get to Harrisburg, and when what the what they're going from Harrisburg is going to be going to Boston. Baltimore. Now, Baltimore, yeah. if you remember, Mary, is a heavy pro-Southern sympathy type of city, right? Is. These guys, again, they have no experience. When the, they got there, they're going to march the streets, and they don't have guns. They have something called a brick bat. They're a bat. That's, that's the that defense. And so while in Baltimore, Company E, they end up getting attacked by a bunch of street thugs. The plug uglies. Um, yep. And so many of them are chanting, bull run and run, Yankees run. But it was the first time the six Wisconsin saw any hostilities because they hadn't seen anything, right? Yeah. They go to camp at a place called Camp Atwood. On, and on August 5th, the camp was attacked by protesters. Yeah. And who actually engaged in gunfire with these guys. So it was kind of getting a little serious here. Now, nobody was hurt, but it was the first time that anybody would exchange fire with these guys. Mm-hmm. But Dawes did kind of laugh it off and say the protesters' attack was a roaring farce. Yeah. That's the phrase he used. And he actually you know, made so. fun of Kellogg over the battle of what became known as the Battle of Patterson Park, apparently. Yeah. Uh, Kellogg, he, he was also in the six. He he fell into a, a hole and quote unquote swore a blue streak. So this guy sounds very familiar to me. Mm-hmm. And Dawes wrote in his memoirs, Kellogg was 
quick of blood, and it was not always safe to congratulate him as the only man wounded in the Battle of Patterson Park. And that's the one thing to note about Dawes in his memoirs is he has this great sense of humor. He does, and he's one of these guys. He has a good sense of humor. He wants to fight, but he didn't know what he got himself into yet. Yep. And so he, so that's, that's that. And you're going to see, as we talk about this, we're going to see his mood change, right? Oh yeah. So, There's a very, and it's almost like, in some ways it's almost like overnight that his mood suddenly changes. And you can, you can see it happen. But a couple of days later, after this, this attack there, the six Wisconsin is going to get moved to Washington mm-hmm. where unlike Baltimore, it's a very pro union type of type of city. So they're greeted they're They're cheered. Yep. They camped at a place called Meridian Hill, which is not far from the present day Washington Zoo and Cy Howard University. It's right in the same town. So there you go. There's an OO reference. There you go. But Washington in August is no picnic, Mary. It's hot. It's humid. It's miserable. Yep. Many of the many of the men got sick with measles. Yeah. They just were just basically unfit for duty. But here is where they get reviewed for the first time by a guy named Rufus King, the other Rufus in this talk. He was he'd briefly be their brigade commander, but Dawes referred to as a homely looking fellow. That's yeah. how we describe Rufus King. Very King was a guy who at Second Manassas got the epilepsy and he missed. Mm-hmm. He's also the guy who helped track John Surratt down overseas. Yeah. after the conspiracy so the rufus king kind of beginning on the end but dawes again he's getting impatient although he's happy in camp he wants to fight he, he's hearing about these battles like manassas and he wants to go all he did was drill 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 under the extremely strict lysander cutler yeah as well as a very popular frank haskell who he loved and the troops loved yeah and it's very and keep in mind it's really really warm because it's you know it's summer and it's washington and washington is holy shit if you've been there in the summer that's brutal uh-huh. there there was a funny story i found that when they were reviewed by rufus king dawes said it was enough to try the patience of a martyr the performance of that contemptible band of ours they played such slow time music that we passed the reviewing officer at about 47 paces a minute we had to hold one leg in the air and balance on the other while we waited for the music so i was like picturing that again like stripes right it's like yeah, these guys exactly. are just so so not together who knows if he yelled razzle yeah. dazzle or not yeah. we'll never know, right? <laughs> that would have been amazing i could see dawes yeah. doing that you know what happens on august 26 1861. Yes, this is where yeah. we uh, Lincoln and McClellan. They get a visit by the great George McClellan, Mary, yeah. who shows up. It's like, Dawes talks a lot about McClellan. He's a bit of a McClellan fanboy. Like he's, he, he is. He wrote he is. his sister that the general is a splendid looking man just in the prime of life. The boys are all carried away with enthusiasm for him. You know, the people on Twitter would say, this can't do this was wrong here. Oh, just no saying. kidding, right? We would. Right? We would. Yeah. But so right after that, so soon after this, this is when the, the, the brigade starts to break up a little bit. Because remember when the 5th Wisconsin is going to get taken away. From, they're going to lose the 5th Wisconsin, yep. but they're going to pick up the 19th Indiana. Yep. And the 19th Indiana is under command of Solomon Meredith, who we'll hear about later on. They're going to pick up that 7th Wisconsin as well. Now they pick up another Wisconsin, but they're no longer all Wisconsin brigade anymore. Because now they get these Indianans in there. So they lose a little bit of that Wisconsin pride, but yep. they uh, they pick up another one. So they're still October's, considered a Western. They're still considered yeah. a Western brigade, yeah. or yeah, Western brigade though. So on October sixth, eighteen sixty one, you can see the snail's pace of how this thing is going. This is how it was for them. Yeah, the sixth Wisconsin is going to finally cross the Potomac, and they're going to go all the way to the Lee Custis House in Arlington. That's mm-hmm. where they're going to go, which is about ten feet over the Potomac River. Yeah. And they, they find themselves in an under division led by Urban McDowell, who we talked about, uh, Bull Run fame. And he's going to make that Robert E. Lee headquarters, his headquarters, that yep. mansion at the yep. top of the hill. That's where it's going to be. Now here, McDowell and Cutler are going to focus on trying to get rid of a lot of the crappy officers and continue to drill. Yeah, they do right? almost like a purge. 
And I think it was, what was it like? It was five or six of them that were totally taken out. They just wiped them, got the hell out, gone. It it was around this time too, the Battle of Balls Bluff had happened, right? So, and Dawes was was upset because Edward Baker died. Baker was in that 15th mass, was brigaded with them for a very short period Mm -hmm. of time. So he started to see people he knows die, right? Which is going to be a common theme going forward. But he still feels helpless because he's sitting there. So they're camped in Arlington. Dawes continues to bounce off the walls as he hears these reports of these other battles. He desperately wants to be involved in one, right? Because don't forget, too, he's still thinking this thing, even though Bull Run happened, he's still thinking this war is going to be quick and he's going to spend the entire war sitting in camp, marching up and down to, yep. you know, to razzle dazzle song. That's what he's thinking. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine like, you know, he, he writes his sister and he says a military life in camp is the most monotonous in the world. It is the same routine over and over every day. Occasionally we have some excitement when we review. That's it. And I can't imagine a guy yeah. as patriotic yeah. as him. And it sounds mm-hmm. like, you know, the other guys in the six are very much the same way, as you said, mm-hmm. absolutely bouncing off the walls. Well, they finally decide something to do with these guys. And so they end up moving to, to a Bristow station yeah. where they're tasked are going to be involved in fixing railroads and fixing bridges. And that's going to be their whole deal is fixing this crap. And you can only imagine these guys wanting to go. Oh, by the way, they get reports now of the Battle of Shiloh happening in Tennessee yep. as they're sitting in Bristow Station swinging a hammer on a railroad track. Mm-hmm. This is a common theme. So they're finally going to march from Bristol to Fredericksburg to continue to help mending those railroads. And this is interesting because, you know, there isn't much insight into Dawes, how we felt about slavery. This point of what happened, you kind of gives you an insight to what he felt about it. While they're marching from Bristow to Fredericksburg, Virginia, similar to Sherman in that march to the sea, slaves start following the army. It starts to attract those runaway slaves wherever the army went. Some Virginia slave owners would contact the Union troops and go, by the way, if you see any slaves, please bring them back to us. And they're like, no. Oh, screw, we're not going to do it, mm. right? But Dawes would say about it, the only thing he, I could find he said about slavery, he said that about this whole situation about not returning slaves. The great question of liberty is working on its own solution. The right must and surely will triumph in the end. So he's pretty he's pretty much saying this slavery thing is bullshit. When, he, when the Emancipation Proclamation happens later on, yeah, he's for it. So you can take you an insight into what he thinks about it, how he talks about it. He's not the most political person. No. He'll run Congress later, but you can see where his heart lies. But the fortune and here's where everything is going to change. The fortune of his entire brigade is going to change on the 8th of May, 1862, when they get a new brigade commander, a hard fighting guy from Philly named John Gibbon. Yeah. OK. And then Cutler is going to return to command that six Wisconsin. And this is when everything changes for them, right? Gibbon, I mean, he's no picnic, this this Gibbon, right? So Gibbon wants his brigade to excel in every single possible way. Absolutely, yeah. Right? Now, this this is a guy, he's a former artillerist at West Point who literally wrote the book in 1859, Artillery. The Artillerist Manual. Um, he is going to bust these guys' balls hard to turn them into what he calls Gibbon's brigade. Now, yeah. First thing he's going to do is get rid of those shitty uniforms. Yeah. First thing. Instead of those fading and shoddy and sleazy blue uniforms that that Dawes talked about, they're going to wear these big, long blue overcoats. They're going to wear white gloves, and they're going to wear something called a hardy hat, which you're wearing right now, except theirs are going to have a feather or a plume put yep. into it. I need and a feather. Gonna, you need, oh, you, God, you can use a feather, yeah, I'd say. But but that's the <laughs> um, but that's the uniform they're going to wear. Yep. So now they're dressed to the nines. They feel good about themselves. They've been in service for about a year now, and they still haven't seen any action. They still right? haven't seen anything, but at least Gibbon is starting to make them feel like, you know, here they all, the, the same, you know, some of the men didn't like the uniform at first because it was pretty cumbersome to put on. 
but he's giving them a sense of I think pride and we're all in this together sort of thing and like Dawes says of given that he was thoroughly educated in the military profession he had also had high personal qualifications to exercise command he was anxious that his brigade should excel in every possible way and while he was an exacting disciplinarian he had the good sense to recognize merit where it existed his administration of the command left a lasting impression for good upon the character and military tone of the brigade and his splendid personal bravery upon the field of battle was an inspiration at first the men don't really get along with him but then they they obviously come to like him very much especially Rufus Dawes you know even after Gibbon is not the commander he is still he's invited to their reunions and it just shows what an impression he made upon those men and I think he made them what they were right he's the start of that he was almost like they would just put an animal in a cage and riled him up to get him ready to fight yeah there's that story where they're they're camped in Fredericksburg and they get into some sort of fight with these rebels who are using the grave of George Washington's mother for target practice one day. Mm. They were firing bullets at the gravestone and something happened and they were, they were going back and forth with them. But, you know, finally, you know, the 18th of May, 1862, Dawes and the rest of Gibbon's brigade, they're going to get word they're going to finally advance towards Richmond, which caused immense joy. Because now they're like, finally, we're frigging doing something about yep. building railroad tracks anymore. We're going. Dawes said, as soon as old Abe saw our brigade, he knew it would take, we could take Richmond and he has sent us to do it. You're starting to see that bravado again, yeah. that pride, that fire that Rufus Dawes had as he headed into Camp Randall, right? Now, around the same time, don't forget, George McClellan's Peninsula campaign's going on and it's in full swing. And old Abe, you know, he's becoming a nervous, he's becoming a scared <laughs> of Stonewall Jackson's presence in that Shenandoah Valley, remember? Yep. And so he's going to take McDowell's Corps and he's going to send them from McClellan into the valley to go on that wild goose chase after Jackson, yep. which has a trick down thing that goes all the way down to McClellan's, you know, the Peninsula campaign. Yep. Gibbons guys are going to be part of that. They're going to be involved in that. First thing Gibbon does, because it's, you know, don't forget, you had Stonewall Jackson have the reputation of being fast. That's yep. how how fast they move. He's going to have them lose their haversacks. So they got to carry, walk 35 miles without knapsacks. They got to carry their coats, their shoes, everything with them in their hands while they're walking, which must have been brutal, right? That must have been quite a thing. And they were being toyed with by Jackson because Jackson was just running around. They captured a Reb one day and they said, and the Reb says, you ones are pack mules and tied to Granny Lincoln's apron string. We ends as racehorses. That was the quote he I used. I read that today and I was like, oh right? my God. Well, that's how it was though. They're, they're playing cat and mouse. So guess what happens again? They're stuck in Fredericksburg again. So yep. it's on July 4th, okay, which is his birthday. Yep. Dawes is going to learn that McDowell, who he calls, and I quote, incompetent, got replaced by John Pulp. Yeah. Okay, so things are changing. Speaking of incompetent, right? Early 1862, uh, in August of 1862, the men are on the move again. And now they actually have a real military task. They are tasked to cut the Virginia Central Railroad. So Gibbons is going to lead them on a 30-mile march in this heat towards Spotsylvania Courthouse. And they're also going to learn that Jeb Stewart's cavalry is kind of in, advancing on Bowling Green with a large force, about mm -hmm. 5,000 guys as well. So they're thinking, well, maybe this might be our chance finally. So Gibbons is going to meet with, with Colonel Cutler along with a, a cavalry commander named Judson Kilpatrick, Mary. And we go with yeah. him again, right? And it's going to be around midnight. They're realizing that they're separated from the rest of their supporting column. And they're still seven miles away from this Virginia railroad. Meanwhile, Jeb has got 5,000 men right up there Savannah. So they're Ooh. like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about this? Right. So they're trying to decide, do we continue to the railroad or do we fall back? And they decide, friggin' YOLO, let's go for it. Let's go for the railroad. Yeah. 
And that's that's what they're going to do. But here's what happens, though. They get called back again because at 8-9, they are told they have to go ahead to a place called Cedar Mountain to support John Pope's Army of Virginia because the Battle of Cedar Mountain was underway. Yeah. So they're bouncing around. They get to the battlefield on 8-11, and for the first time, Dawes is going to start to see the carnage of war. Yeah. He's going to see heaps and heaps of Confederate dead, and his guys were tasked to bury them. So Dawes, he's seeing the price of war, and he calls it, quote, my first contact with the real horrors of war. And the horrors of war, really, little did he know, are just beginning. He has that itch to fight, and it turns into that be careful what you wish for very, very soon because you just might get it, Yeah. right? Yep. And it took forever for Rufus Dawes and his guys, but specifically him, to finally see action. But when it does come, it doesn't stop, right? Yeah. August 20th, 1862, Dawes and the rest of his brigade are going to cross the Rappahannock at the uh, the Orange and Alexander Railroad, where they're going to start to see rebel cavalry. Beyond the cavalry, you're going to see rising dust from the infantry. And that dust in the infantry is going to be under James Longstreet. So they're, they're you know, now we're in for now, right? Yeah. They start to take artillery fire, which is going to become the Battle of Rappahannock Station, the first Battle of Rappahannock Station. And it was here that Dawes is finally going to see the elephant. This is the first time they're going to get involved. So Gibbon's brigade is going to be placed on the right of King's division under Pope's army of Virginia, and they're going to begin to move forward under fire. Now, a year plus of waiting for for Dawes for waiting is going to finally come to an end, and he's going to finally get to fight a battle in, in, in enemy country, right? He is, and he. this is probably where you see him start to kind of that gung-ho guy that we saw, you know, that wanted to fight, that wanted to be part of this, that was worried. This is where he probably starts to just, you see the pieces chipping away, right? It's a very yeah. but slow he, thing that he happens. Was still, he was sky high in this one still, though, because... His Dawes Company K, don't forget, he's still just committing a company. Yep. He's ordered to cover the front of the brigade. So they're going to be in the front. The 6th Wisconsin overall is going to capture one rebel lieutenant and two privates. Now, the battle was inconclusive overall. wasn't really much. But the 6th saw their first glory on the field. And they were jacked. They, they, they represent themselves well. And so the beat goes on now. From Rappahannock Station, they're going to start moving towards Warrington, Virginia. And on the 20th of August, they're going to head towards the town of Gainesville. Mm-hmm. And they're going to see large numbers of rebel prisoners starting to appear here. But they're taking fire. And McDowell feels that this fire is from the rear guard of Stonewall's Jackson's army who they think is in Centerville, Virginia, okay? And so McDowell's Corps under Rufus King's division is marching in that direction on the Warrington Turnpike and they're waiting for them and, and waiting for them in the woods is not the rear guard, but it's the entire Jackson left wing, right? Exactly. And this, of course, we know is the Battle of Bronner's Farm. They're going to find themselves running into the teeth of the Battle of Bronner's Farm, also known as the Battle of Gainesville. Now, this battle is the one where it gets bad. Dawes is riding on his horse uh, with the 6th Wisconsin while the 7th Wisconsin is being supported in the 2nd Wisconsin. They're all, they're all basically getting pushed back once they get in line. The Rebs start to get pushed back a little bit and the Wisconsin guys are cheering. Dawes guys were lucky because the 6th was on the right-hand side, but they were kind of in a low ground area. Yep. And so they didn't really take too, too much fire. It was this battle that Lysander Cutler gets shot twice in the leg. So he gets shot. We're not going to go into too, too much detail the Battle of Bronner's Farm. We've already... We have already a whole seen. episode about it. Yeah, we'll focus on that. But ne- suffice to say, the 6th Wisconsin is going to take their lumps. They're going to lose 72 guys out of 504. Dawes and his regiment, they're going to end up spending the rest of the night wandering the field looking for dead and wounded, right? Dawes talks in his memoirs about the sounds of the groaning, begging for water at Bronner's. This was the fight that he imagined in his head. This is the battle he said that they've been yearning for, Right. But he ends up seeing a lot of the post-battle stuff again. And to your point, 
it all starts to chip away at him, right? Yep. It, Rat. Rat. <laughs> Rats. <laughs> it, it does. And you think about how you always have to remember how he was at the beginning of this, how gung-ho he was. And it was kind of like one of those things where are you looking at this through rose-colored glasses? I don't know if that's the right thing to say about this. But, you know, when you see the aftermath of it and, and Dawes in his memoirs, and, and we'll talk about this when we get to Antietam, is very descriptive of some of the stuff he sees in battle, of what is happening. And I think it's to convey to the reader the horrors of war that he went into this thinking this is going to be an adventure. This is going to be like, I'm going to save the country kind of thing with everybody else. And that's why he wanted to get there because he wanted to be part of that saving the country. When he sees that aftermath, I mean, when you're tasked to burial duty, you know, I, I just think of the scene from it's in one of Jeff Shara's books about the Battle of Shiloh and the character of Bauer is assigned to burial detail. And it was so horrific that a lot of the men started drinking during it because it was oh, just such a terrible thing to do to have to bury, even to bury the Confederates, if you were Union, but to bury your own people as well. Not a good thing. Yeah. Right? The other thing that Dawes does is he's very opinionated and vocal about how he feels about his superiors. Right? Oh, he he's is. Very proud yes. So when Dawes gets back to Manassas Junction after this Barnes Farm, you know, he is he's pissed off at Pope's battle report, who feels he didn't do his men justice in the battle. Oh, he's been pissed Dawes, off at Pope since the beginning. He refers right, he to was. like Pope. He says, like, when Pope made that proclamation, Dawes calls it the bombastic proclamation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Dawes was also pissed off at, at McDowell, who he says was, and I quote, lost in the woods the entire battle because he wasn't there. But he also says in contrast, he says, Jackson had a clear purpose and full control of the fields, which of course is a direct passive aggressive shot at his superiors, yep. especially McDowell, who was nowhere to be found. He says the best blood of Wisconsin was poured out like water and it was all spilt for naught, right? So he, he, he writes about this battle. He said, Dawes writes about the Battle of Bronner's Farm. It was fought against a background of blunders, imbecilities, jealousies, and disasters in the Pope campaign in bright relief of the gallant conduct of our heroic leader, John Gibbon. So he's basically saying Gibbon was great. Everyone else was a disaster yep. in this. Now, now, of course, Pope is going to double down on this battle, the Battle of Second Manassas. Mm -hmm. We're not going to talk too, too much of the details about that. The 6th Wisconsin is going to be forced to cover Gibbon's retreat in that battle. They only stayed behind because they didn't get the orders to retreat because no officer had the guts to go tell them because it was too dangerous to go where they were. So they got stuck there. Rufus King does credit the 6th and the 2nd Wisconsin. He says the 6th Wisconsin was the last to retire and saluted the approaching enemy with three cheers and a rattling volley. So they, they, were, they were earning their chops. They were no Big doubt time. about it. They were brave. Yep. The, the show kept moving for them. September 1st, 1862, they'd gone to Fairfax, Virginia, and then to a place called Upton's Hill. Now, this is the same day as the Battle of Chantilly on September 1st, right? Yep. On the 5th of September, he writes to his mother. Again, he's always talking to his mother. He's a mama's boy, this one, right? <laughs> he says, and it becomes something more of a regularity. As these battles were going on, he tended to write to her more regularly as it went. Yep. And his tone and his bravado were starting to slowly change in his letters. He's seeing death up front with increasing regularity. Some of his closest comrades are being killed right in front of him. And it's clearly beginning to take a toll on Dawes mentally. And yeah. he's, if you read the letters, you can clear. He writes, my dear mother, we have had a terrible ordeal. We were in battle or skirmish almost every day from August 20th to August 31st. I have been in my post at every single battle. The bravado is being watered down a little bit now. Yeah. He started to realize it. Now, if you remember how the mood was in Washington at the Second Manassas, I mean, it was it was it was like my house after that Patriot game the other day. You know, <laughs> oh, I know what good, that was, was like. Not that was good, not... That was not a good thing. I don't even not know if love actually would help that. <laughs> Go on. 
I'm doubling down. <laughs> Bronner's Hill to Manassas too. There you go, right? So, but the mood was obviously really, really bad. And there was one funny story about Lysander Cutler, which is kind of funny. So Lysander Cutler, for some inexplicable reason, decides he's going to go to Washington and pay a visit to Edwin Stanton. Just because. Yep. After second Manassas, right? Cutler has been shot in both legs. And he has, he's walking on a help of two canes. Just imagine that, right? Cutler is going to walk into Stanton's office. And Stanton looks at him and angrily says, what in the hell and damnation are you doing here in Washington? And Cutler responds, because he's a Massachusetts guy, Mary. He responds, if I had not been shot and a fool, I would have never have come here. Good day, Mr. Secretary. <laughs> he storms out <laughs> walks up. amazing. Typical, ma- typical mass hole comma that I can be proud of right there. That's awesome. Going back to Upton's Hill, um, Gibbons is, is going to start to reorganize his brigade after Pope is bounced out of the Army of Virginia that gets disbanded. His brigade is now the 4th Brigade in the 1st Division of the 1st Corps under fighting Joe Hooker. Mm-hmm. Dawes and his regiment are going to leave on September 12th, and he's going to write to his mother again, my health is good, another battle is coming, as he's realizing Lee's Maryland campaign is slowly starting. Exactly. And the next big thing for them is coming up, and that is the Battle of South Mountain. Just real quick, what's interesting is their march, though, right? How they got there. And that was really, really cool. The 14th of September, they're in Frederick, and Dawes and his men are learning that McClellan's back in charge. This is the first thing they've learned. And they are pumped. They are absolutely excited. The troops are cheering. Dawes says, we have a general now, and we will show the country what we can do. But going back to what they said before... He loves him some Mac. There's no oh, question. Oh, he's he very pro McClellan. And I'm sure that I think that was the feeling of a lot of the soldiers there. Like McClellan is the general that you want because he cares about his men, right? He's also, you know, really good at organizing, really good at drilling. And, you know, the other thing too is that when General McClellan reviewed the troops way back on August the 26th, Dawes wrote, General McClellan pronounced our regiment one of the best in material appearance and bearing. We expect and hope to be in the first advance. And this opinion expressed by the commander of the army is, I think, of earn- an earnest of things hoped for. So Dawes is probably carrying that memory with him, too, of having this guy that, you know, said, oh, you're one of the best here, right? McClellan cared for his men. And that's what you have to remember when you're looking at him. And Dawes, oh, Dawes conveys like Dawes. That's Dawes's opinion. He he's very pro McClellan, mm-hmm. and for good oh, reason too. Oh, there's, there's no doubt. So as they're marching, the Sixth Wisconsin is they're the ones who are in the lead, and they're marching down that national turnpike mm-hmm. in Frederick while listening to these insults from these Virginia women as they walk by. Why are women so mean? Why? You know, I'm not mean. Am I? Well, no, never, never, oh, never. Mean. I don't ever yell at you, right? But it's always funny whenever there's this civilians hooting at the military. It's always women. I know the guys are probably fighting. But I always got a kick out of that. Yeah. Well, that would be me. Of course it would. You know, Dawes and his men are going to see the slope of South Mountain. That's eight miles off in the distance. They're going to start to see smoke from the battle rising it. Yep. Now it's cool because on the way to the battle, on the way down towards the mountain, that rather is, they run into a wounded lieutenant colonel from the 23rd Ohio who was hurt in the battle. The man was the future president, Rutherford B. Hayes. Mm-hmm. He was the guy they ran into, which is kind of cool. So yeah. it's funny how small world. The Battle of South Mountain for Gibbons men would take place at a place called Turner's Gap, yep. where the National Turnpike passes through it, and the six was selected to attack it, no question. Yep, and they have quite the fight going up that this hill against these Confederates. I think they're going up against uh, D.H. Hill, right? That's where, that's where D.H. The, Hill is. The absolute iron. So Dawes and his men, they're going to be laying in the grass in the sun watching the rebel artillery. And finally, along with the second Wisconsin guys, they're going to finally begin to climb that slope in two columns yep. when they hit that rebel skirmish line, right? Yep, and Gibbons going up with them on his horse and he's urging them on and he's urging them forward and they keep going and going and going until 
pretty much darkness sets and they can't do anything else. Gibbons charging forward, forward. The seventh moves up. The six is going to be following them. And they're firing into those revs in the woods, right? The revs are behind that stone wall. And, and the six is ordered to move in the double quick. At this point, Dawes is getting command now. He's getting command of that right wing of the regiment to fire into that woods. And the men are cheering. They're getting all fired up. His old friend, Colonel Bragg, of the seventh command of the left wing at the time. And they're both kind of creeping towards the woods. So you think about it, these are guys who were kind of messing around in Camp Randall. Now they're game planning at the end of, of, the, of these flanks. So one Reb yelled at him, you damn Yanks, we gave you hell at Bull Run. And a member of the six responded, never mind us. It's not McDowell after you now. It's Little Mac and Johnny Gibbon. <laughs> so this goes to show how they how they feel oh, about how their they, leaders, the, How right? well respected they are. Yeah, that how they feel about them, for sure. And you, you feel bad because what happens is, I mean, it's cold. It's getting dark. Yeah. Because this is all taking place really at dusk. The men run out of ammo and Gibbons, they go to Gibbons and say, we need some more ammo. And he says, I can't get you any, but I'm going to relieve you guys. So just hang here, just, you know, yeah. touch base, whatever you're going to do, but just hold this ground as best you can. And we're going to relieve you. So it's now dark and the dead and dying are all lying all around them. And because of the location, there's no stretcher bearers. They're all stuck up mm -hmm. there, right? Dawes is going to write in his memoirs, the dread reality of war was before us in this frightful death upon cold and hard stones, the mortal suffering, the fruitless struggle to send a parting message home, and that final release of death. All the darkness were felt even more deeply than by the light of day. So he's describing these people trying to, no one, to try and write notes home. They can't do it. Yeah. They're just, there's no one to help. Gibbons does send relief, okay? Most of the troops did get relieved around midnight, but no one came to get the six Wisconsin. No one came. So they spent the whole night there. They didn't leave till eight o'clock in the morning. Oh my God. Shivering, shivering in the cold all night until the night of the 15th. A messenger from Edwin Sumner is going to tell them, Sumner tells them, I can't send men into the woods tonight. All my men are cowards in the dark. That's why he didn't send them. Oh, my God. So for that reason, Dawes and the Six spent the whole night freezing on the side of a mountain, right? Everyone knows that this battle earned them the nickname, the, the Iron Brigade, yeah. all that stuff we And who about. knows if it was McClellan or Hooker who said it to each other, but apparently McClellan and Hooker were up at the HQ, and McClellan's like, who are those men? And Hooker's like, oh, those are mine. And, mm -hmm. he, and one of them said, they fight like iron. And from there, mm -hmm. they become the Iron Brigade. Oh, it's, and so they, they definitely got a lot of accolades. You know, eventually, they do finally get down from the mountain, and they start to push down that turnpike again. And this time, the loyalists of Maryland are cheering. They get to a place called Boonesboro, which is not far from Sharpsburg, Mary. Yep. And the, the locals are, are all cheering. They tell them that rebel infantry was just coming through here with General Lee, and they are com completely in disarray. And Hooker is going to tell them, Joe Hooker, that they have intel of their 40,000 Rebs gathered on a nearby ridge beyond a creek called the Antietam. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you can see where this is going. It's headed right so, for the Battle of Antietam. So 916, the day before, Dawes and his men are settled in the same woods just north of Miller's Cornfield. And it's raining. It's a drizzly rain. They all know the next day's battle is coming, and they know it's going to be freaking doozy. They just know it, right? Yeah. And the impending battle in the rain is making everybody miserable. Dawes writes, nothing is more solemn than a period of silent waiting for the summons of a battle, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what they didn't realize is where they camped that night, they couldn't tell because it was dark. But when the sun came up, they were right in the middle of our perfect, the artillery, right in range. Yep. So the next the next morning, they fall under artillery fire. Unbeknownst to them, they put themselves right in the middle of a, of a shooting fish in a barrel. 
Yeah, and you it know. was this is where you start to see some of Dawes's very graphic details of this battle. And this is again the chipping away at what is happening to him. He says that Captain David K. Noyes, his foot was torn off at this one percussion shell that dropped, and another man in his company lost both arms. And again, this is from a percussion shell. And this is at the very beginning of the battle. Dawes says, this dreadful scene occurred within a few feet of where I was riding and before my eyes. So you think about that, that he's, you know, he's writing about this decades after. And he can probably still see it as if it happened. Everyone only has so much tread on your mental tires. Exactly. Right. Until they go bald. And and the more it's used, the more it fades away and the more in trouble you get themselves into. But they end up hiding behind a barn as a battle on Tatum starts. Poffenberger. Um, Hooker's first quarter. They're in Double A's division and uh, Gibbons Brigade, and now it's Edward Bragg's regiment. Dawes is second in command of the 6th Wisconsin as a major at this battle, okay? Now, Hooker's Corps north of those west woods we talked about in front of Miller's Cornfield, a few hundred yards away from that Dunkard Church, right? They moved into those west woods and immediately started getting pounded. Battle of Antietam is underway. Now, to the right of the 6th was that Sharpsburg-Hagerstown turnpike, right? Mm-hmm. When they start moving... Dawes writes, I marched forward and saw Captain Edwin Brown killed from Company E. Now, don't forget, Dawes is kind of given orders now because Dawes ordered them to move forward. He writes, the spectacle of a young officer with uplifted sword shouting in a loud imperative voice the order I had given him. A bullet passed into his open mouth and his voice was silenced forever. So now he's given orders and his orders are getting people killed that he knows. He was close with Brown. He'll talk about him later mm-hmm. on. The battle continues. The men scrambled into that cornfield as Captain, uh, as Colonel Bragg, who's now in charge of 6 Wisconsin, he's ordering his men forward. They're lying on the grass watching the bullets zip, whiz over their head. And it's at this moment where Bragg himself is going to be hit. And now Dawes is going to be forced to assume command of the 6th Wisconsin. Now he's in charge of the regiment. He's going to continue Bragg's order to move forward into that cornfields. And this is that mentioned Captain Kellogg, his line, where he, one of his captains, he says, they're being ordered to cross the turnpike into the cornfield. He yells to Dawes, please, Major Dawes, it's impracticable. The first is murderous. You know, it's just, it's just, you can't, you can't do it. But they do it anyway. They move in and several men were shot down immediately as they cross that turnpike into the cornfield. Just picture men are falling everywhere. The dying, Dawes said the, the injured were lying Weighing and waiting and praying for death yeah. um, to come and take them away. And so the, the battle of the team goes on. The Rebs finally get drawn back. Dawes is going to push forward to Dunker Church. The 6th Wisconsin is going to get driven back because the Rebs are going to get support. And there's that story where Dawes is going to grab that flag mm. because his men are scattered. They're running. They're, they're full gallop running from the Dunker Church back. He's going to grab that blue Wisconsin flag to rally his men. And he's going to gather about 200 of them uh, back together again. Noontime, Gibbon's going to arrive. And I guess he's covered in black powder. What the hell he's been doing? He's covered in black powder, right? (laughs) And he wants the six now to save two guns from Battery B of the 4th U.S. So they were being challenged by the rebels. And at this point, 280 men enter that cornfield and 152 were killed or wounded already. That's how vicious this was. Dawes called it the most dreadful slaughter to which our regiment was subjected to in the entire war. But you know what happens? They they support the guns. And they yep. they save them. Dawes is going to see who? He's going to see Colonel Bragg. Yep. So he's happy to see he's still alive. And they remain there at that battery for the most part for the rest of the battle. But after the battle, you read the quotes that he writes. And Dawes was clearly shaken at what he saw. 
there's no question. Whether it be guilt from issuing some of the orders or just the visuals, but some of the quotes he had about how about this battle or ones that haunted him, and you could really, really see it. Yeah, you you absolutely could. You know, from the ones that I read earlier, where he saw the guy's foot torn off and the guy's arms, and the one thing I thought of is that scene from Glory. You see the guy's head get ripped off. That's shit that Dawes would have seen as well. You yeah, know? He, and that, that's right. the exact scene I saw. Like, I, I was trying to think, what what is this like that I've seen in a movie before? You know, in, like how you said that opening scene of Glory at the Battle of Antietam. Or the beginning of Saving Private Ryan, even. One yeah, of exactly. Battles, yeah. Right? Very, you know, he writes about the Battle of Antietam, uh, about the dead. He writes, the piles of dead were frightful. My feeling was that the Antietam Turnpike surpassed all manifest evidence of slaughter. I trembled with sleep. I trembled with every step with fright, he wrote. I rode through the narrow lane made by the piles of bodies swollen black under the hot sun. Friends and foe were indiscriminately mingled. So he, he's literally walking his horse through a little path that was created put by pushing the dead people out of the way. Yeah. That's what he's talking about. In the previous 45 days up to this point, they were engaged in battle in 11 of them. That's almost 25% of their calendars were in battle. Now, this comes from a guy who was itching a fight, who sat around for a yeah. year, and now he got thrown right into the meat grinder. Yep. Yeah. And he's beginning to realize that this is not the adventure that he thought it was going to be. No. And he's conveying that in his memoirs. And that's why his memoirs are so important. Yeah, right. And, and he writes to mother again on the 23rd of September. He's going to write to her. And you can see the toll of his mental fiber becoming mm-hmm. evident more and more, right? He writes, I have for a day or two been suffering from a severe attacks of, of a bilious sick headache, the result of these trying times. My best friend in the regiment, Edwin Brown, was shot dead. And Captain Von Bichel was shot dead and his Newfoundland dog lay upon his dead body. So this is the, so he's this is what he's writing to his mother now. No more bravado. No more fired up. No more save the union. And now he's writing about the stuff he's seeing, and you can see how it's changing. The war, though he was so anxious to join, was now destroying him from the inside. And it's yep. very obvious that it was. You know, by October, Gibbons Brigade is going to add that twenty fourth Michigan under Henry Morrow. And October 3rd, Lincoln's going to visit. Yeah. You know, and shall I say, Lincoln, he's going to visit Antietam, who da- Dawes called towering like a giant, is the phrase he used in mm-hmm. scrambling. Morale's not good, right, at this time? But I guess Lincoln visiting probably would have raised it a little bit. No, I think it was probably not that great considering what just happened. Because don't forget what happened a couple of days later. They got rid of McClellan. Exactly. And that was bad. Yeah. McClellan's gone, replaced by Ambrose Burnside. Yep. And now John Fulton Reynolds is now commanding his corps. Now Admiral Doubleday is going to command is going to be, uh, command Dawes' division. Right? Dawes talks about how angry the troops were about McClellan being sacked, mm-hmm. and he talked about how many officers were, were ready to resign on the spot that day. Oh That's yeah, how pissed off they were. I, this right? is something that you have to when you're looking at how we view General McClellan. A lot of it is through the eyes of. Abraham Lincoln, right? Or just kind of from the Lincoln perspective, when you look at it from Dawes perspective and from this kind of this soldier's perspective, it changes it a little bit. And, you know, we did that episode about that we were talking like you can't blame McClellan 100% for for a lot of this stuff. But but Dawes is very pro McClellan and you lose that guy that has your back and that is taking care of you to this guy that you probably don't know him. I doubt mm-hmm. if many of them knew who Ambrose Burnside was. And here he is. He's suddenly commanding your army. Yeah, and things are going to really change quickly going forward. I mean, it's just one of those, you know, change is going to continue by the end of the year. Yeah. Um, they were at the Battle of Fredericksburg. We're not going to talk too too much about Fredericksburg, but but they were there. Joe Hooker is going to re, is going to eventually replace Burnside after that Bud March. Yeah, which James which Dawes were, is very happy 
about Hooker because he described uh, those days, you know, after Fredericksburg with Burnside as some of the darkest hour of our struggle. What he had to say about Hooker was the Apollo-like presence of General Hooker, his self-confident, even vainglorious manner, his haughty criticism of others, and his sublime courage at the battlefront have combined to make his impressions upon the public judgment that obscure his most valuable traits of character and his best qualities in commander. With indefinable zeal, he addressed himself to the task of reorganization, and if I may so express it, re-inspiration. You know, knowing that this is how Dawes feels, he feels like, oh, good. Like, there's this guy coming in and he's, you know, he's close to being what McClellan was and maybe he can inspire us to get back to where we were before. So clearly they were at a really good place and the McClellan's taken away from them. Well, Dawes loved McClellan. Yeah. He loved Gibbon. He loved Doubleday. Right. Mm-hmm. And he loved Hooker. This guy pr- had a virtual triple X flag flying above his Wisconsin. I mean, he liked, right? But he, but he does, though. A lot of these changes are going to happen. So mm-hmm. jump ahead real quick to March of 1863. Yep. Dawes is going to get a break. He's going to finally get a furlough, right? And this is courtesy of a lot of the Hooker furlough programs, right? So Dawes is going to get a 15 day furlough. He's going to return home to Marietta, Ohio. And he's going to be asked to speak at a local courthouse on the 16th to a huge crowd who hung on every one of his words, right? I'm surprised he did that, to be honest, because, I mean, the last thing you want to do when you come back from a break is talk about, you go on vacation, you want to talk about work. It's kind of one of those deals, but he, he certainly did. At this point, Dawes felt really good about the Army. They had plenty of food. He loved Joe Hooker, like you said, because he fed them and he reorganized them. Yeah. They got the Dairy Queen gift certificates, the whole exactly. deal, right? You know, he spoke highly of the Emancipation Proclamation. We hinted at earlier. He said the Emancipation Proclamation gave everyone a test of their loyalty. That's how he described it. Mm-hmm. So what are you fighting for now? Well, where's your loyalties lie, yeah. right? He hated the Copperheads. He called the Copperheads traitors who go down in history with infamy. So those people in the North who supported the end of the war, he felt that they were just traitors and they, they, they were despicable. He also warned that, guess what? We're not going to have any overwhelming victories in this war, guys. It's not going to happen. He said the Rebs are too skilled to be gobbled up and bagged. Mm-hmm. So he's basically saying, you know, we're going to do our best to win this. We're going to win this. But don't expect any slam dunks here. Every one of these battles, I've seen Antietam. I've seen South Mountain. I've seen Fredericksburg. These are ugly, ugly battles. And when he makes them back to camp, he's going to be made lieutenant colonel, right? Yeah. And although people talk, you know, he went to Chancellorsville, and, and we not talk too, too much about that. <clears throat> I think when people talk about Rufus Dawes, the thing they think about most is probably the Gettysburg campaign, yeah, right? The rail, at the railway cut. By the Gettysburg campaign, the Iron Brigade has 2,200 guys, and they're comprised of five regiments. The 2nd, 6th, and 7th Wisconsin, the 19th Indiana, and the 24th Michigan, mm. right? Hooker's in charge at this point. And he liked Hooker, but he grew impatient with Hooker because he wasn't sure Hooker knew where the hell he was doing or where he was going at this yep. point. By early June 1863, they were marching. They knew something was up, and they knew the Rebs were marching, but they didn't know where they were going. There were a lot of starts and stops where they were told, you're going to be up all night breaking down your tent. We're going to be leaving first thing in the morning. So they'd be up all night, they'd break their tent down, they'd be ready to go in the morning, and they'd sit there for two more days. Yeah. And they would just sit there. There was a lot of that, right? Hooker had this balloon, this recon balloon, that Dawes said was always up in the air. And they took that to mean that they have no idea where the Rebs are. Because it was always up. He was always up there looking. They couldn't find him. I do feel bad for Hooker at this time, though, because he was going through a concussion. He was. There's that backstory with that. But yeah. he certainly was. But the troops 
But although the moon was really, really good, they got the core badges, they got a better artillery yeah. system, they're getting fed, but they're still frustrated mm -hmm. because now they're, they, they know something's going on. And you know where they're getting all their information? The newspapers. That's how yeah. they're finding out. They're getting, you know, newspapers being delivered by the messengers, headlines, rebels in Pennsylvania. And so what Dawes was afraid of was he was afraid of having to go back to Antietam and fight in that battlefield again. Because that was a mental block for him. He writes about that battlefield. I never want to fight there again. The flower of our regiment was slaughtered in that cornfield. Yep. So he's like, he goes, this is all looking like this could happen again in Sharpsburg, right? On the 27th of, of June, uh, back near South Mountain again, they're in that area. They keep moving on the 28th. They find out Solomon Meredith is now in charge of the Iron Brigade. So that's mm -hmm. how he ends up being in charge of that. It was right around here they get to Emmitsburg, Maryland, when they find out the news that George Meade's now in charge, mm -hmm. and Hooker is out. Now, Dawes was very lukewarm on George Meade, very lukewarm. He said, and I quote, Meade lacked the martial bearing of Joe Hooker. And the other thing that pissed him off is whenever Meade rode by in his horse, he pulled his hat down over his eyes so his troops couldn't see him. And he says it always wow. bothered him. He says it just, it just, he just, he did not want his soldiers to see his face. And they didn't know what the hell that was about. Because he would come by and they'd cheer and he would just pull his hat down and didn't want to see him. Maybe he was shy. You know, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Have you seen his face? I would be hiding it too. He's a guy, he's <laughs> a guy who's wearing a mask every day. Aww, no, but seriously Mead. though, they took that to be, whether it be standoffish or what. But he wasn't Joe Hooker. And that was what bothered a guy like a Rufus Dawes, right? Well, Joe Hooker was just so, like as Dawes describes him, he's like, he is very arrogant. He He's also very, he's got this zeal that brings it out, brings that out, same thing out in the troops for re-inspiration, right? Like Dawes had seen him fight at Antietam as well. Like, like Hooker's wounded at Antietam too. And I think he just, it was that Dawes is carrying with him how he re-inspired the Army of the Potomac with all those positive changes he made, right? He's carrying that with him. I think Meade's biggest problem was that he wasn't Joe Hooker. Right? Yes, and exactly. He was, and, he yeah. wasn't, and he wasn't George McClellan. Right. Yeah. And, and I think anybody who was going to come along was going to be compared to one of those. Exactly. Two guys, right? Exactly. And, and I think that that's what it was. Right. Yeah. So but regardless, July 1st, 1863, Dawes is going to get orders to pack up and march immediately towards the town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Yeah. It's really early in the morning. Now, the six was the last to move in this brigade. They were, they were the last ones. He had 340 men marching down the Embersburg Road and they're all singing that song. The Campbells are coming. That's the song they were all singing. Mm -hmm. And they did that to show, you know, as a show for the locals, basically. They were probably sitting at the uh, the Reliance Saloon, probably, as yep. they were marching by, you know, in the distance. Great place you know? to close out the night at, by the way. Oh, certainly is but at this point john buford's cavalry is doing their thing west of town and north of town they're doing the mm -hmm. fallback thing yep. you know stalling guys like john james archer and, and joseph davis that, that that's all going on really at that around that same time right as those guys are advancing on now when they finally get to near the Kadori farm they start to run across the field towards seminary ridge where solomon meredith is going to tell them to form their line at this moment they're standing probably right around where the seminary museum door is right yep. around there at that moment dawn is going to learn that Doubleday is in charge and that their core commander, John Reynolds, is dead. He's going to find out. Now, they don't really tell anybody, but the six is going to be held in reserve by Doubleday. Doubleday is going to tell them to lay down on the reverse slope of the field yeah. 
between Seminary and Herbst Woods in the front. The Wisconsin troops, the rest of the Iron Brigade, the 19th Indiana, the 24th Michigan on the, on the left, they're in those woods fighting those Carolinians, right? The six is lying on their stomachs and they can't see it, but they can hear it. So imagine that little road that cuts in front, just be between that and the museum, that, that's where they are, oh right? They're lying down in that reversal, they're that close. While they're waiting there, they see a blanket go by with a body under it, and that's John Reynolds. Yeah, I read that in his memoirs, and I was like, oh, my God, that's crazy. Around this time, they notice that the rebels are trying to get around their side. They're trying to flank them, and they're coming from the area of the the peace light, right? And so they're coming down. So Doubleday is going to order the 6th Wisconsin to rise and double quick towards the the Cash Town Pike. They're going to head down there where those Rebs are trying to get behind the Iron Brigade guys in the woods, right? Now, at this moment, Dawes is still riding his horse. Mm-hmm. His horse is going to be shot in the chest yep. and he's going to survive. But the bullet went into his chest 17 inches into the horse's chest. He lived, but this means Dawes is going to, have to be riding on, he's going to be on his on foot the rest of with his troops. His horse, yep. he can't use his horse anymore. The 6th Wisconsin is going, to, is going to charge and they're going to stop at that fence at the Cash Town Pike while the Rebs are running at them. He says that it looks like the earth swallowed them up whole, is what he said. Yeah. Because they all jumped into that unfinished railroad cut. Yeah. And he describes that the, the fire that his men met going into this was murderous. And he said to climb that fence in the in the face of such fire was a clear test of metal and discipline. Yeah, Dawes has got the 95th New York on his left along with the 14th Brooklyn. And he's going to tell a guy named Edward Pye, the major of the 95th New York, we must charge. And Pye looks at him and says, well, then charge it is. That's the side, that's how they're going to do it. Yeah, and Dawes describes the fire at the railway cut as an unbroken roar, and men were being shot by 20s and 30s and breaking ranks by falling or running, but the boys crowded in right and left toward the colors and went forward. Well, what they were trying to do is they would, the Rebs would come volley and fight. Now, the railroad cut yep. is, if some people, it's chest deep. Some people, it's, it's 10 feet over your head. <laughs> but Me. they would time it. <laughs> oh, for you, yeah. But, for, <laughs> but what happens, the Rebs would fire a volley. And then the Union guys would run because they had to time it. Now, it's 180 yards between that road and the railroad cut, okay? The Union lost 180 guys. They lost one man per yard to get there is how they did it, right? And once they got there, a rebel color, a flag was was seized by a guy named Corporal Eggleston. He grabbed the flag and a rebel pulled his gun and shot him on the spot for taking his flag. Now, to avenge him, a guy named Private Anderson, who was nicknamed Rocky Mountain Anderson... (laughs) We'll let you figure that one Jeez. out. Okay. He's going to smash the skull of that rebel at the bottom of his, of his musket. Yeah. For, for killing, wow. for killing Eggleston, right? Yeah. And what's going to happen is a guy named Corporal Francis Waller is going to grab that rebel flag that we're fighting over and he's going to present it to the to, uh, his officers. And for that, he's going to get the Congressional Medal of Honor. So as we think about Charles Tillman, we don't believe that alone. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Dawes is going to order, is going to tell the Rebs to, you know, throw down your muskets, surrender, be fired upon. And Dawes is going to end up with six swords. And I guess he talks about how it was hard to carry them. Because yep. he was trying to walk and they were falling as he was trying to walk. Well, he, he didn't re- he didn't realize like because he, he said I was so new in command like he's almost kind of being naive about it right and this is the second Mississippi that yep. is surrendering to him and he also says this, the coolness self possession and discipline which held back our enemy or held back 
our men from pouring in a general volley saved a hundred lives of the enemy. And as my mind goes back to the fearful excitement of the, the moment, I marvel at it. But yeah, he's got these six swords and he's like, what do I do with these? <laughs> so just imagine that. So the six was constant, but that's not just how it ends for them. The yeah. next, they're going to end up going to Culp's Hill. Mm-hmm. They're going to, where Stephen's nobles for the most part, and they're going to support the 12th Corps. While they're there, there's going to be a local woman named Sally Paxton, who's going to present Dawes with a bouquet of flowers for his bravery who allegedly saw him at the railroad cut. I don't know where the hell she was watching this. Yeah, but geez. She, I've been to the railroad she, cut and I, um, I'm yeah, like, she I was not want to be here during the battle. That's for sure. But, but Dawes is going to write after the battle, he's going to write, God has pres- preserved me unharmed at another desperate battle. Yep. He's going to spend his 25th birthday on July 4th, burying the dead of the sixth Wisconsin, whose numbers are now below 200. Mm-hmm. So again, 50% casualty rate. While this, this is all going on, he, he's going to end up he's going to end up becoming friendly back in Marietta, Ohio with a woman by the name of Mary Gates. Yeah. Right around here. How he was writing her. It's kind of tough to determine how he ended up meeting her because he, he was, refers he, he to her as my home. best girl in his letters. Right. So some, she just kind of appears. They become quickly engaged. So on January 18, 1864, he gets a furlough to return to Marietta to marry her, and they vacation in the lovely honeymoon destination of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Mary. That's where they go for Must their honeymoon. drank lots of beer. So, certainly did. So, and to Mary's delight, he spent the, most of the honeymoon recruiting guys for his regiment. So oh, that. His work I would have been thrilled with that, too. I'm sure, I'm sure that would have worked out pretty well yep. for you, no question. But what's <laughs> funny about this, though, while on his honeymoon, his horse with a bullet in it, he yeah. still he had right they're walking around the town in milwaukee and it's cold and the horse slips on the ice and he falls off the horse and sprains his ankle this was the only wartime injury that he sustained the entire civil war yep and he was on his honeymoon right oh my god um, Jesus, and, god but, if it's on your honeymoon you got to come up with a more creative story than your horse slipped on ice who knows right. what, 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 what they were into, but but he, but that's what happens. And because for, for that injury, he's going to get an additional three weeks of furlough to heal his ankle is what's going to happen, right? So with his honeymoon over and his ankle healed, he's going to return to Culpeper, Virginia. And on March 22nd, he's going to go there and he's going to join U.S. Grant's Overland campaign. Yeah. So the B keeps going on, and this guy wrong place, the wrong time. He's like the Charlie Brown of the Civil well, War. Well, this is right? a guy that is in twenty some battles, and he never gets injured. That's the thing, right? Except for the honeymoon horse, that was yeah. the only thing. Honeymoon horse. One thing you start to see is you notice he stops writing the letters to his mother now, and now he writes almost daily to Mary. Yeah, and you can tell he just left his new bride. He's. He, He's, he's back in war again. He's in the Overland campaign. You can see this melancholy and depression really kicking in now. All the bravado he had now in these letters of 61 and 62 is completely gone. When, whenever he got a free time in Culpeper, you know what he did? He There was a local guy, an elderly rebel. His name was Mr. Mossy. And you know what they did? He played chess with them every single day. Wow. I don't know if he was he was preparing for the big tournament with Claiborne later that year. <laughs> Who knows what he was doing? But that's what he did. He just... With himself, he played, and so he he just kind of would, would become separated. He became sort of distant. May 5th, 1864, Dawes and the rest of the army is going to march to the wilderness in the old Chancellorsville battlefield. Now, not long later, he's going to see James Wadsworth killed at Spotsylvania, but Dawes is going gonna, is gonna to live to fight another battle. So he's going to write to Mary, by the blessing of God, I am alive. I cannot avoid the probability of me coming out safely or strongly odds are against me. Yep. And so he he realized that it's just a matter of time. I yeah. mean, it's just the odds. As a matter of fact, the newspapers are starting to report that he's dead. Yeah. So 
so the on May 15th, they report that he's dead. So he's going to write his wife um, around the same time. You cannot conceive of the suffering here. This is about Spotsylvania. Um, Dawes was broken and he was haunted by the, by the fear of death and leaving his new bride, as well as the guilt of surviving so many battles while many of his friends died yeah. in front of him. And you he's not even the, getting you can see what's going on. injured. You know, you go, you go back to what he thought and saw at Antietam with the guy's foot getting shot off the guy's arms getting shot off right in front of his face. And he says that in his memoirs, it was right in front of my face. And, you know, here he is in the Overland campaign and he tells his wife, I am sick with the horrors of war. It is impossible for one who has not undergone it to fully understand the depression of spirits caused by such long continued and bloody fighting and work. And at one point during the Overland campaign, he's writing her and he said, the bullets clip through the green leaves over my head as I lie behind the breastwork writing. I have had no full nights of sleep since May 7th when I took command of the regiment. Day after day, night after night, we have marched, fought, and dug entrenchments. I have not changed my clothes since May the 3rd. We have not seen and seldom communicated with our wagon train. I have not the composure to write as the bullets are coming so thickly and some poor wounded soldiers are near me. I can't imagine being her getting these letters, let alone him in this and writing them. Well, back home, people are thinking he died. Yeah. You know, his Henry Dawes, Rufus's father, read in the paper that his son had died. Yeah. And so he, he wrote to Salmon Chase asking to have Rufus's remains retrieved from Spotsylvania and returned to Ohio. The Malston Star newspaper in Wisconsin, they wrote, Lieutenant Colonel Dawes died as he lived doing his duty. And he's still alive. And he's um, re- he Dawes is able to read this, too. Can you imagine? <laughs> I, I Like, I can't even imagine that. And, you know, the other thing Dawes says of this campaign is he says, during the unexampled campaign of 60 continuous days, the excitement, exhaustion, hard work, and loss of sleep broke down great numbers of men who had received no wounds in battle. Some who began the campaign with zealous and eager bravery ended it with nervous and feverish apprehension of danger in the ascendancy. Brave men were shielded if their records or other occasions justified another trial, which ordinarily resulted well, but cowards met no mercy. I mean, he's, and to Dawes' credit, he's going to stick it out. He's going to yep. stay with his army right up in the siege of Petersburg. He's going to be at the crater, yep. but on August 10th, 1864, he's had enough and he's going to be mustered out. He's enough is enough and yep. he is done. So in the in the end, for Rufus Dawes, he fights in you know, 20 plus battles and his only mm-hmm. injury was that sprained ankle in his yep. honeymoon. Take this guy to Vegas, Mary, as far as how, how that works, right? Exactly. Now, ap- but ap- that really war- weighed on him though. That whole not getting injured is something that weighed, I, you know, and you look at him, the whole not getting injured is weighing on him because he's like, wow, I've seen my friends killed. Why wasn't I in their place is probably what he's thinking. And you can't imagine how many other men are probably thinking that too. No, no doubt. I mean, the war is going to end. He and Mary are going to, are going to end up having six kids. Yeah. Okay. So, so including a son, Charles, who's going to later be the vice president under Calvin Coolidge. So yeah. he's going to continue that lineage, right? Rufus is going to open himself up a lumber business, you know, and he's going to want to dabble in the growing rail, uh, railroad industry. He'll find himself serving a one-year term in Congress in 1880, of all things. Yeah. He was offered a position as the minister of Persia in, 19, in 1897 by president and fellow Antietam veteran and coffee chaser, William McKinley. Yeah. But he t- but he turned it down. He does. He just, he yeah. just, the days of service were over for him. Mm-hmm. And the thing about him is his body and mind were clearly sick, both of them. Yeah. Around age 50, his health began to deteriorate. It just started. His body began to fall apart. He spent the final seven years of his life in a wheelchair. He'll, he'll eventually die on August 2nd, 1899. 
at the age of 61. That's all he yeah, was. Yeah, he's only 61 years you old, know? and he's probably the first you know? case. I shouldn't say first case. He's not. But he, he certainly, PTSD he certainly is what he has. He, cle- he clearly did. He clearly did, and his body fell apart. And, and the thing about Rufus Dawes, and, and his, his memoirs were interesting. The final paragraph in his memoirs, you, I, I read a lot of his memoirs, and what was unique about this one, the final paragraph was a paragraph written by him to himself. Mm-hmm. And he writes, a generous courage was spurred by ambitious hope, but you have lived to see spring up as the result of your suffering, trial and victory, the most powerful nation in history in the most benefic- the most beneficent government ever established. So he wrote that. Bottom line is they don't make Rufus Dawes anymore. No, they don't. They no. just don't. He was a guy who fought for his country, yep. wanted to out of pure patriotism. You know, we talk a lot about John, you know, John Bell Hood. Is sacrificing mm-hmm. his body for the altar of the Confederacy. You say that phrase all the time. Yeah. This is a guy who was sacrificing his body and mind and didn't even know it no. until it was all over. No, and you see you see it slowly chipping away at him. And he writes his wife in December of 1881 because he's in Washington. He said, I have today worshipped at the Shrine of the Dead. I went over to the Arlington Cemetery. It was a beautiful morning and the familiar scene so strongly impressed upon me during my young manhood were pleasant. Many times I went over that road admiring the beauty, beautiful city and great white capital while it's then unfinished dome going to hear the great men of the day in Congress. An ambitious imagination then builded castles of time when I might take my place there. Now at middle age with enthusiasm sobered by the hard fights and hard facts I ride not run with elastic step over the same road with this ambition at least realized and with warmth enough left in my heart to enjoy it. My friends and comrades poor fellows who followed my enthusiastic leader in those days and followed it to the death which by merciful province I escaped lie here 24 of them on the very spot where our winter camp of 1861-1862 was located I found every grave and stood beside it with uncovered head I looked over nearly the full 16,000 headboards to find the 24 but they all died alike and I was determined to find all poor little Fenton who put his head above the works at Cold Harbor and got a bullet through his temples and lived three days with his brains out came to me in memory as fresh as one of my own boys of today over their graves I get inspiration to stand for all they won in establishing our government upon freedom equality justice liberty and protection in to the humblest so there he is back at that camp from 1861 and you think about his attitude at the time in 1861 was one of like i want to go fight i want to get in this and he's back standing there in that same place where his friends are buried yeah absolutely you know he began fighting in 1861 he died at the age of 61 so life is circle is no doubt about it so but i think that's a good place to drop off i I think think so too yeah good half good happy ending for you there way to go Um, but I think uh, I think it's it's a, it's a fascinating story because a lot of people, like you said before, know the Dawes story. They they know the railroad cut. Yeah. They, maybe maybe they know a little bit about um uh, you know about Antietam. But I think when you look at the overall picture of what he did, he's a fascinating study. He's oh, an he, absolutely fascinating he, study. He is, and I think you and I were talking like just yesterday about the fact that you know so Dawes is very open about his experiences where you know we we don't have these experiences from every single soldier who fought and lived, right? Who didn't get injured in what they thought. But I think Dawes is their voice because Dawes is not the only one that had PTSD. We talked about William Rosecrans having it at Chickamauga, but how many of the other, these other soldiers like Dawes had their experiences, didn't write them down and were suffering with PTSD and going through the same thing that he did. So he's kind of their voice for the, the nameless and the faceless. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. So what's next, Mary? What's coming on the pike? So our next episode is episode 69. 
which is going to be sex in the Civil War. Ooh, all right. Yeah, ooh. And then we are going to have to have a meeting at Civil War Breakfast Club headquarters, probably with some IPAs, about what our episodes for January are going to be. But when this episode drops on December the 26th, you still have three days to sign up for our book club meeting on December the 29th with Kent Masterson Brown to talk about um, Retreat from Gettysburg. So oh. if you would like to join us for that, even if you haven't read the, read the book, 6 p.m., via Zoom, December the 29th, info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com, and we will send you an invite to that. Everyone Looking is forward to it. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. By the time this drops, Christmas will be in the past. Hope you had a great Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas and great Happy holiday New Year. For those who celebrate, of course. So, anyway, Mary, any final words from you, Fincheroo? Well, thank you again for another year of awesome podcasting, because by the time our next episode drops, it will be 2022. You are the best co-host in the world. Um, well, so thank you. Thank you very and much. Thank you I, to I, resemble, I resemble that comment. Thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners, too, for being so supportive. And we've enjoyed getting to know a lot of you over the past nearly, it's, we're going into, our, I guess, our second year of doing this podcast. So it's really, really awesome. So thank you, everybody. It's definitely a lot of fun. So thank you, Mary. Likewise, you are, you are great as well. So everyone, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Have a great holiday. Have a great weekend. We look forward to talking to you at our live on Monday night. Monday yes, night. Monday night, Monday night live. Wrong. Yep. Monday, Monday December so, 27th. All right. Well, everybody, again, have a great time. Have a great weekend. Have a great holiday. We look forward to talking to you on Monday on the other side as we get ready for our next fun and exciting episode. So here's the Iron Brigade. Here's to Rufus Dawes. Yep. And here's to you, Vincheru. And off we go. See y'all later. Peace out. Bye, guys. <laughs>